0: Welcome to The Observatory. I'm Jessica Helfand.
1: And I'm Michael Beirut.
0: This week, we are going to talk about some things that are in the air and on our minds, one of which is this ginormous sign that has landed, courtesy of Donald Trump, on a building in Chicago. Michael, what do you think about this sign?
1: If you don't know the story, there was a handsome building on the Chicago River. That was the uh, Trump International Hotel and condominiums, I think. And the um, building has been up for uh, several years. And just in the past uh, few months over the summer, the owner, Donald Trump, got around to putting a sign on the building. Some people feel the sign is really, really big, ginormous, as you said, Jessica. Some people, including Mr. Trump, think it's exactly the right size, and so uh, this actually raises an interesting question about signs on buildings and whether they're all good, all bad, or how we decide which is which.
0: The last time I heard about a story like this, it was when Florence Knoll in the 1980s, after her reign as the queen of all things modern furniture related, actually decamped to Miami where she was just apparently astonished at how ugly the billboards were and she went to great lengths, I think ultimately unsuccessfully to try to create rules and ordinances that would prevent just bad, ugly billboards from gracing the skyway and the, the highway as you drove into Miami. But this is something different. I mean, this is really so much about the context of the skyline in Chicago, which is historic and cultural and significant. And just because you have Trump money doesn't mean you can necessarily make your type of your name be a certain size. Although I did find myself wondering, do you think that if his name was something, if he if he'd written something other than Trump, people wouldn't have been so upset?
1: You have gone exactly to the um, the heart of the matter. If you ask me, I actually think that if it had been another five-letter word, like just simply Hyatt or Hello, I'm not sure the outrage would have been a pr- as pronounced as it was the sign itself actually is very well considered as somebody who's done this sort of work i would even argue that it's you know at least in the abstract suited to the size of such a big curtain wall modernist building and the sign itself is like very well constructed so it's a there's something about just the nature of people connecting the letters um, that comprise a sign to the word that it spells to the person that it identifies that I think is all kind of getting conflated in people's mind and kind of creating the outrage in a way. Um, So I think there's sort of this interesting way about how we legislate taste, particularly graphic taste on buildings is kind of intriguing.
0: But it also gets at this question of whether you can legislate typographic form, right? So when cities have rules about what you can and can't do, are there typographic rules too?
1: Well, um, that's something we can get into a little bit later, I think, uh, as we talk. But one of the things that I found very ironic about this news story is that uh, as it was happening, almost exactly at the same time, there was another sign in the news, and that was a sign in Brooklyn that has been in existence for decades. I think it was erected in the late 40s for a company called Kentile Floors, uh, very visible uh, eight stories tall this is a giant sign that got dismantled uh, in the summer and the sentimentality and in fact outcry in some quarters that attended the dismantling of this sign was actually kind of in stark contrast to the outrage that was being voiced with uh, Donald Trump installing his. And I found myself musing about what made one sign beloved or what made one sign uh, less beloved. And part of it, I think, is sentimentality, obviously. The Trump sign going up was viewed in some quarters as uh, commercialism and, you know, rapacious capitalism run wild. The dismantling of the Kentile floors sign which was actually put up for purely commercial reasons at the time, was just seen as being a bit of old Brooklyn being gone that now we'll never recapture again. And people, in fact, there were photographs posted online of people who had tattoos of the sign on their body. it just was like, you know, kind of just seen as being, oh, another Brooklyn landmark lost. And what's so ironic is that the the Trump sign actually has better typography and it's better made. And it's much smaller and more carefully suited to the architecture.
0: But it's interesting, too, that these kinds of typographic markers are themselves cultural landmarks just as much as buildings are. I mean, you mentioned large type that actually connects you to a city. I mean, the Hollywood sign is certainly that. It's the idea, I think, that it's front and center, and it has to engage in a kind of orchestration with other buildings. And it, as being sort of the new kid on the block and it being Trump, you're absolutely right. I'm sure that that has everything to do with it. But I, you know, in Paris, where I've been spending the last few months, there's actually rules that you can't remove type from buildings when it has a certain historic component mm. that who knows how these things happen. But right in my neighborhood um, where I'm living in the 11th, there is this amazing building that has... It's an old plumbing warehouse that has the most beautiful typography that you know it represents things that don't even exist anymore, and yet you turn the corner and it's now an office depot, which has a really insignificant logo. But for whatever reason, the Parisian authorities have decided that this has to remain, and thank God it has. So you get this kind of duality and this conflation of old and new. I don't see that happening with the Trump building. It's not like it's sitting next to the Woolworth Tower and you're going to have this sort of poetic moment remembering back to the old days when that was erected in the- And then, oh, by the way, here we are, 2014, and Trump is as big as a football field.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I I, I really don't know. I I think that uh, time, you know, the patina of time makes, uh, makes so many things that I never expected to look good look good. I think that part of it is just the distance that time gives us and the fact that these things seem redolent of their era.
0: They are redolent of their era, and nostalgia is, is, as it always has been, a very emotional trigger for anybody who has any kind of interest in the visual world. But this idea that, t- you know, one man's type is another man's horror story, which certainly, on if you're Rahm Emanuel and you're trying to create an ordinance on the topic of visual clutter and, and tastelessness, which I think in an interview he called it tasteless, how do you legislate that kind of taste to, to normal people who every day have to use type? And, and this gets to another topic we wanted to talk about today, which was the Robert Bringhurst book, which is a really in the canon of discussions on typographic appropriateness and form, is really an important book in the literature of the history of typography. And it's been cited recently by someone we know. Sam Potts wrote on Medium last week about the fact that maybe it's dated and maybe not as appropriate as it once was. But what do you think about this Bringhurst book and its relevance to people working today needing sort of guidance when it comes to typography?
1: Um, Well, if you're looking for rules to govern typography, probably the classic book in every designer's canon, and in other canon as well, uh, is a book by a man named Robert Bringhurst called The Elements of Typographic Style. It was um, published in the early 90s in 1992, and it's been updated continuously since then. And if you ask anyone online, if you just go to a message board and say, what book do I need to learn about typography, I promise you one of the first responses you'll get is uh, Bringhurst. And uh, it, it really is sort of um, an attempt to come up with a typographic corollary to what uh, Strunk and White came up with when they did the elements of style to govern the way that writing is. This is the same thing, but ostensibly governing the way that uh, typography looks, works, and reads.
0: The book initially when it was published made an impact and also has had staying power because increasingly we all have to deal with typographic style. We, We sign letters, we write emails, we worry about what our resumes look like. We design web pages. I mean, everybody's making things now, and everybody makes things that have words. That said, you know, typography really is, as I think Ellen Lupton once called it, the common currency of design. It really is the thing we trade in more than anything else. And so designers tend to have a very strong opinion about what these things mean. Michael, why do you think Sampotts took issue with this book at this moment in time?
1: There's a couple of places where he's getting to this fundamental question that I think everyone comes to grips with these days, which is how do you pick the right typeface for the job? And the answers in the book are, are debatable and sort of fairly um, predictable. You know, if you're writing about something fast, pick a typeface that looks fast. Writing about something old fashioned, pick a typeface that looks old fashioned. Where I think the critique is really well placed, it's that. Your writing may be more complex than simply being out something fast or something new or something old, or something kind of easy to find a typeface corollary for. Then in fact, matching a typeface and making that selection and deciding what's going to be the most readable thing, what's the most evocative thing, what has the right spirit for the words is actually a really delicate thing to do. And I think maybe too uh, evanescent, if I can use that word to capture between two covers in a book.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting. You know, Paul Rand once said, you must first learn the rules and then break them in an interesting way. And I think bringhurst. you know, it's a manual Uh, to the extent that the canon has to have these kind of You know, rule books. This is like doing scales on the piano before you get to play the Bach Concerto. And I think that maybe what's missing from this conversation is the idea that some people really need to have those things and then learn how to break these rules in an interesting way. But I think the world is moving really quickly now. And people like Sam Potts, who has a quick mind to go with that quick world, would like to see, as many designers would like to see, a more kind of enthused, experimental, potentially, you know, new just novel, alternative way of working with type. But type, you know, also can be used really badly, as we know, and so I think if Brinkhurst is out there helping people play by the rules for a while, it's probably not a terrible thing. One of the
1: points that Sam raises with Brinkhurst, which I think is actually maybe his most well-taken point, is that uh, there's this sort of tension between what a designer, what a typographer's role is in the reading process and what really is the writer or editor's role. And uh, the elements of typographic style tend to put a lot of emphasis on what the typographer is doing, what the book designer is doing, let's say. So there's, you know, recommendations of the book that you should eliminate footnotes, you know, when you can. They're just not good. They clutter things up, they uh, don't help the reader. And you know. Good advice and everything, but um, if you were given a manuscript by an academic publisher or, conversely, David Foster Wallace's publisher, and just came back and said, look, you know, i got to get rid of these footnotes, Robert Ringhurst tells me so, they'll just say, are you crazy? The footnotes are the book, basically. And so there's all sorts of positions you can take about typography, but in a way, you know, the starting point is the text and kind of making that text actually work correctly is important.
0: Right, his famous thing is saying typography exists to honor content. I mean, it was a guy who was a translator, too. I think there's something really interesting about it. He has a very global view of language, but it's very text-driven. I mean, this is not the land of display type and giant type faces, and this is the opposite of what we were just talking about with the Donald Trump sign, right? This is, this is the micro sort of detailed, you know, absolutely kind of how you nuance and finesse something so that it communicates as best it can. But it is a very, it's a reflective tone. It's a conservative tone. I think it's in its 20th printing. It's 398 pages. It's a Bible.
1: Jessica, you were practicing as a designer before the first edition of this book was published. How did you learn how to do graphic design and typography if you didn't have a book like this?
0: My memory as a student is that there were so many books that had been written in an antediluvian moment in design history. I mean, Beatrice Ward and Updike and these books that I would see in bookstores that were about typography that were plotting and they explained things. And I, I thought, how do people get excited about type? I did not know how people got excited about type. But at some point, books like this came out, and they were still sort of classic in their orientation and respectful and kind of conservative, but they had a pulse. There was something mm. about them that, that suggested that maybe you could actually learn something from them. And, and they were beautifully designed. They were handsome to look at, you know, so that the standards of the book production itself made you enthusiastic about starting to understand how you might make things that reflected a better understanding of the medium you were supposed to be quite good at knowing about anyway. But I think where this book is different and where as an editorial designer, I wish I'd had this book when I was a student, is the degree to which it looks at text and meaning and content and how typography can serve that without being sort of subsidiary and you know less important but really you know unlike Beatrice Ward who when she wrote The Crystal Goblet talked about this kind of invisible relationship between type and form this was very pragmatic this book it's very practical and yet as operational as it is it doesn't read like a manual it reads like a real text a real something you want to dig your, dig your teeth into.
1: Yeah, for years, uh, Beatrice Ward's essay, The Crystal Goblet, was sort of the standard for typesetting. And her um, essay said, imagine you're a connoisseur of fine wines and you have before you two goblets. One of them is made of the thinnest glass. The other one is a solid gold encrusted with uh, rare stones. Which do you want to drink your wine out of. And she says the real connoisseur will select the glass because the transparency of the glass lets you see the wine, enjoy the wine, smell the wine, and lets you kind of uh, have nothing interfering with your experience of drinking that wine. And she then says, thus it should be with typography. She sort of makes this really passionate and beautifully put case for designers and typographers being completely uh, um, subservient to the, the words they're uh, uh, setting in type. Uh, I think Bringhurst is much more of, a, of an activist. Certainly not as active as some of the experimental typographers that were, you know, working in Ward's time and since, and up to this very day. But he certainly is one that actually advocates clearly for the relationship of type and text.
0: It's interesting how people have become have a greater appetite, shall we say, for the notion of the manual. The Bringhurst book certainly is a certain kind of manual. Tells us about type and text and readability, legibility, but it doesn't stop there. The um, uh, Massimo Vignelli and Bob Norda did a graphic standards manual in 1970 for New York City for the New York City Transit System, that is being reissued as a full-size book. And Michael, maybe you'd like to talk a little bit about how this came about. It's been on Kickstarter. It's pledged greatly in excess of its $100,000 goal. And it certainly suggests a great new future for those who love manuals and those who love design.
1: So the story was, in the late 60s, two designers in their firm, Unimark International, Bob Norda and Massimo Vignelli, two Italian designers, uh, were hired to create a rational sign system for the New York subway because the New York subway system was actually three different companies had combined lines with completely inconsistent, not just signs, but tracks and cars as well. And uh, amazingly enough, they came up with a solution and still amazingly enough, that solution is what you will see today, decades and decades later, if you ride the New York subway. You see basically the system that Norda and Vignelli laid in place in um, 1970. So what is funny about this manual is that it's basically the most old-fashioned thing in the world. In its original form, it is a giant, thick, orange Three-ring binder, and um, each page kind of just shows you some aspect of those signs. You know, I've often said this is like the equivalent of someone reprinting a fine art edition on a really beautiful paper with beautiful binding of you know ikea instructions on how to put together a coffee table you know in terms of like the the actual content it's like so unbelievably technical that it's actually kind of hilarious however It's so beautifully designed and so carefully conceived as a piece of proto 20th century modernist design that I think that's its true value. And I think the fact that this thing you come in contact with so frequently if you live in New York or if you visit New York actually has an underlying code to it is just fascinating to people in the way that a foundational document of a country like the Magna Carta or the US Constitution is for the workings of that country.
0: It's true. It's interesting. I mean, you know, if you look at the phone book or you look at any one of a number of things that are now ubiquitous as documents that have a certain operational function, it doesn't have the beauty of this thing. It is extremely analog. It is extremely basic. But it is, in a a very, I think, classical sense, underscores so much of what designers certainly love, which is to take a system and to break it down into its component parts to such an extent that it really becomes almost a work of art. I'm very interested to see what they do when they take it out of the, th- the. Well, it's actually a five ring binder. Oh,
1: five ring binder, excuse me, yeah.
0: For our listeners who want to take a look, they have it online at thestandardsmanual.com. It is really exquisite, and it, what's also interesting about it is that it doesn't date. I mean, maybe it dates in terms of the binder, But it doesn't date in terms of the style. And this is, I think, an example of typography's lasting power. And certainly, the designers who originally conceived of this thing have left no stone unturned. It is really a thing of beauty.
1: If I can come up with a corollary for it, it really is sort of like Audubon's Birds of America, which, uh, again, was really just supposed to be a, uh, a record of birds for people who needed to know what birds looked like, right? There's something about the level of obsessive detail that goes into it and the fact that but the, unlike
0: the birds, there's nothing illustrative in here.
1: no, no, not at all. on the contrary.
0: it is so reined in it is so limited by the very nature of those component parts, and yet it's exactly that that makes it so beautiful. So when the old modernist people. Talked about the economy of limitation, when they talked about the fact that the success of their work was that they only ever worked with three typefaces or two typefaces, or they only ever used five colors, or they only ever designed with a certain grid, we laugh and we think, or we scoff, or we smirk, or we somehow reserve some judgment that says, What did they know? And yet, this is unbelievable. This is really unbelievable. And I think it's so terrific that these young guys have decided this thing needs another life. And, of course, they're right because, you know, we should all make $700,000 on Kickstarter. (laughs) I have to say, though, uh, the New York City subway system is one of many, uh, London being an obvious example also, that exists by virtue of long-standing tenacity to a graphic system that really has not gone out of date. So if this is the language of Vignelli and Helvetica in England, it's Eric Gill and Gil Sands. In Paris, no such consistency. All the subway stops look different. There's a certain blue-green sign on the streets, but there's one subway stop in Paris called Bonne Nouvelle, which translates as good news. And I don't know how they got away with it, but the designer in this subway station managed to take all the letter forms and shift the baseline up and down so it looks as though the news is so good that the letter forms are dancing. (laughs) Speaking of things that are playful, um, I thought we might talk for a few moments about a great loss for the design community and for the philatelic community, which is the death last week of Howard Payne, who was an original member of the Citizen Stamp Advisory Committee, who jumped the fence in the early 80s because he wanted to not only advise on stamps, he wanted to design stamps. And in the time that he was on the committee uh, and off the committee, he designed more than 400 postage stamps. My God. I worked with Howard and he was one of these great indefatigable makers who was always drawing, always thinking, always making, always coming up with new ideas, proving that you know there's always a way you can reinvent yourself and reinvent your work. He understood the incredibly taxing and challenging scale of working with a single tiny thing. But he also knew that there was a kind of playful way one could work with it in the context of the larger pain that whole idea that a stamp could participate in a broader narrative and then come back to be one single thing that worked. You know, it's really hard to do 400 things and keep reinventing yourself um, and have to deal with Ronald Reagan one minute and apples and oranges the next and celebrate the century and, you know, American writers and Middlebury College and fruit berries. I mean, this is not an easy thing for anybody to do. And he did it with grace. He did it with skill. He did it with humor. He was interested in everything, and uh, it's a great loss. Why do you think,
1: Jessica, that the United States government is, was willing, is willing to pay such careful attention to stamps and so little attention, from a design point of view at least, to other things starting with, say, currency, but there are other things as well that could use their attention?
0: It has a a long-standing tradition, um, the Postal Service. There's a Postmaster General. The Citizen Stamp Advisory Committee was created in 1950, and it was meant to be really civilian, normal people on the ground advising the Postmaster General about stamps and really looking at the breadth of topics that could be represented on a single stamp. And, of course, these things changed by virtue of who the postmaster is and what the currency is. When I was on the committee, we moved to forever stamps. That no longer obliged stamp designers to worry about numbers on stamps, which seems like it would be a great thing, except, you know, sometimes you had really great numbers.
1: Jessica, have you ever designed a stamp?
0: No, I didn't, because I was very much on the other side of the fence. I was heading the design subcommittee.
1: I attempted for Howard, in fact, to design a stamp one time. For my home state of Ohio. And um, it's one of those cases where tragically I kind of lit on an idea that I was just completely obsessed with and I couldn't uh, get it out of my head. And um, it was basically to take the four letters in the word Ohio, H-O-H-I-O, obviously, and to sort of just arrange them like Gary, Indiana's love, you know, two on two with the O and the H on top. Then you rotate the H sideways and you get an I with slab serifs, then the O kind of opposite the other O. Then I put them in these really nice colors, nice red, white, and blue colors that I thought really evoked kind of an Amish quilt. There's like an Amish tradition of quilt making in Ohio as there are in other states. And I just thought it was like i was so I was already kind of like licking it in my mind and sending it to my mom and of course you know uh howard ended up telling me after going back and forth and giving me a lot of kind advice and something else uh, we finally kind of like gave up because the stamp that was finally chosen i think had a battleship combined with the state bird the cardinal combined with some latin inscription combined with something else sort of was just sort of a not quite the uh the pure design thing i was thinking of and so one of the things that impresses me so much about stamps and the ability to design Uh, ones that aren't just beautiful but actually are popular and excite people is that it really requires this ability to reconcile the demands of uh, design and aesthetics with uh, things that would appeal to regular people.
0: It's a very humbling thing and you're absolutely right that it's, you are reconciling the demands of a public that is greater than you can possibly imagine. And I think Howard was, uh, I think, remarkable among many of the stamp designers in this country that we've been fortunate to have, because he, he really did try to do new things. I cannot say enough about people who reinvent themselves. We all try to do it. It is not easy. He did it. He nailed it. It's a great loss.
1: Mm-hmm. Rest in peace, Howard Payne. Yeah, we'll miss you.
0: Michael, thanks for talking. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, Design Observer, uh, please follow us on Twitter. We'd like to thank our sponsor, MailChimp. Michael, who else do we have to thank?
1: I just would like to thank you, uh, Jessica, for a lovely conversation. A
0: lovely conversation, Michael. Let's do it again.
1: Thanks. Bye.